It's about time. A ten-part study in the Apostle Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, which addresses the three dimensions of time. What are they? Past, present, future. Yeah. The three dimensions as they shape, challenge, and perfect our lives as disciples of Christ. You don't think time makes a difference? Okay. Think about whatever you're going through right now. Would it have been different if you'd have gone through it 20 years ago? Okay. How about if it was put off and you didn't have to go through it for another 20 years? Would that be different? <laughs> the only thing that's changed is time, right? Time changes everything, including us. Past, you've got one, right? <laughs> I think it was Oscar Wilde who said... Uh, Every, uh, every saint has a past. Every sinner has a future. Past. Our present. What's going on in your life right now, today? Things likely that you had never even thought about months ago, years ago. All of a sudden, they're big issues, aren't they? And the future. What lies ahead, I wonder? We all want to know, but uh, God's not very helpful in this case, is he? <laughs> you know what I hear God saying back to us about the future over and over again? Hey, you're going to have to trust me with this one. <laughs> We're going like, yeah, with just a little information, God. Already in Lessons 1 through 3, we talked about the past experiences we've had. How they've shaped us. How they've made us the people we are. How they brought us to where we are right now. Our past experiences. Today, we're going to start talking about our present day challenges. Do you have some? Oh, you didn't think you had any? Well, when you get home today, you'll probably find out. Yeah, right? It's in the mail. (laughs) It's on the news. It's coming. Every day brings its own set of unique challenges to our lives, doesn't it? When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he wants them to understand what the experiences of the past have done to shape them and to remember them in light of what God's doing in their lives. And now as they think about the challenges of the present, he wants them to put their trust in God to face whatever he brings into their lives. Rewarding challenges. God will never allow a challenge to come into your life that He's not capable of using for your good and His glory. Not everything God lets come into your life is in itself good. But that doesn't bother God. It doesn't trouble Him in the least bit. He's able to take anything... And use it to bless you. Use it to further His plan for your life. Use it to bring glory to Himself. I'd like to read something from a book. Now last week I read from a book. I said everybody ought to read it. And it's simple. Anybody can read it and understand it. Today I'm going to read from a different kind of book. This is, this is a uh, psychology textbook. Okay, But... This is some of the most profound stuff I've ever read. 
And if you can't find yourself in the words of this opening chapter, I would be shocked. Dr. M. Scott Peck has written a book called The Road Less Traveled. He's talking about mental health. He also encompasses spiritual health. And ask the question, why is that the road less traveled? Why aren't more people healthy? Why aren't more people spiritual? Why aren't more people happy? Why don't more people experience a sense of fulfillment? What's missing? What's the problem? He opens his first chapter with these words. Listen carefully. Life is difficult. Everybody on board? This is a great truth, says he. This is one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth. Because once we truly see this truth, once we truly embrace it, understand it, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted that life is difficult, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Are you following me? Most people, he says, do not fully see this truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan, they whine. They complain, more or less incessantly, noisily or subtly, about the enormity of their problems, their burdens, their difficulties, as if life were generally easy, as if life ought to be easy. They voice their belief, noisily or subtly, That their difficulties represent some sort of unique kind of affliction that should not be. And that has somehow been especially visited upon them. Or else upon their families, their tribe, their class, their nation, their race, even their species. But not upon others. I know about this moaning, writes Dr. Peck, because I've done my share. Have you? Are you a complainer? Probably part of being human. Why does God allow problems in our lives? After all, if he's God, he could remove any problem situation, right? He could relieve any pressure, any problem. We just prayed about people with problems. So obviously, it's part of our faith system that we believe God can help people who have problems. So why does he allow them in the first place? I mean, if he can fix them, why allow them in the first place? Am I the only person who's ever asked these questions? (laughs) This is what Paul's going to address in this part of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, we also thank God continually. In his second epistle to the Thessalonians, there's a famous verse at the end in which Paul says, In all things give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. 
in all things. Now he says, we also thank God continually. Do you thank God continually? I doubt it. You thank God when good things happen. You ought to. When you get a a present or a gift or something pleasant or things go better than you would expect it, you stop and give thanks. If you're really spiritual, you even look hard for these things. And then you give thanks. (laughs) But when you get bad news, do you give thanks? When the diagnosis is troubling, do you give thanks? When the weather sucks, do you give thanks? Paul says, we thank God continually because, here's why we do it. When you receive the word of God, the Thessalonians had heard the gospel through Paul. The gospel is the message of God's grace. For those of you who may need to catch up on this real quickly, you were created by God for God. Your greatest desire as a human being is to be in relationship with Him. Well, that's a nice thing, isn't it? Problem. You can't do it. You can't have it. You're a sinner, and your sin has separated you from the God you were created to know and love and have a relationship with. Well, that stinks, doesn't it? Good news. God sent His Son... To do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He offered his life a sinless sacrifice so that you could be reconciled to God. You don't have to do a thing. Not only do you not have to do a thing. If you try to do a thing, you'll just get in the way. Knock it off. God's done it all for you and his son. That's the gospel. That's why we call it. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? That's why we call it good news. Paul says... I thank God continually because when you receive this message, when you heard it from us, you accepted it not as a human word. You recognized this wasn't our idea. No human being would have ever thought up such a ridiculous thing. This had to have come from God. But it is actually the word of God which indeed is at work in you who believe. He's saying, so you believed this message of grace, and then the moment you believed it, it began to work on you. God began from the inside out, on the basis of your faith, to shape you, to form you, to get rid of the crap, the bad stuff, the things that don't please God, the things you weren't designed to experience or know, And to make you just like his son, Jesus Christ. It is a process. Because if he did it instantaneously, it would kill you. That's not in the Bible, but that's what I think. Okay, So moment by moment, experience by experience, God is changing you. Now, how is he changing you? He is changing you in the same way that he saved you. When you heard the message, okay, you invited, you said, I'll take some of that. You invited him in, and he moved in and started renovating your life, right? Now, by the way, you couldn't save yourself. We know that, right? 
Guess what? You can't renovate yourself either. You've tried that before, right? We are in the month of the crowded gym parking lot, right? Where everybody says, this is the year I'm going to get in shape. And then for about two weeks, the parking lot is full. (laughs) Because we're not capable of renovating ourselves. But this same message of grace by which we invited Christ in does have the power to renovate us. Which means, let's go back and remember what the message was. It was the message that what you cannot do for yourself, God has done for you. It's a gift. Free. Guess what your transformation is? It's a gift. Free. Stop trying to work at it so hard. Have you noticed that? The harder you work at being a better person, the more you slide backwards. And then you you slide into, now I have to cover up and pretend that that stuff doesn't exist because if people find out what I still struggle with, boy, what are they going to think about me? Right? But the truth is, Paul says, it's the same thing. The same grace by which you invited Christ in is the grace by which He's doing the renovation work. He determines the speed. He determines where he's going to start. Now when you look at your brother or sister, you might think, I wish he'd start by cleaning this part of his life or her life up. But God is going to start wherever he pleases him. Did you know that? And he's going to go at whatever pace pleases him. And he's not going to ask your opinion. It's all about grace. It's all grace by which we're saved, grace by which we're changed and transformed, grace by which God works in the lives of other people. We thank God continually for this grace. Paul says, we have been called, in this sense, to represent Christ's kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is that place where God is sitting on the throne. Where is that? Well, that could be in your life. You ever hear about turning it over? Okay. If you indeed have, and those just aren't words, not just rhetoric, but you indeed have said, not my life anymore. I'm not in charge. I'm not calling the shots. I'm not making the decisions. Sometimes I think about what I'd like and what I want, but the truth is, that's pretty irrelevant because I'm not my own. I don't belong to myself. I belong to God. So the only thing that matters is His plan for my life. Sounds pretty drastic, doesn't it? But if you're there, that's when you entered the kingdom of God. You're not in the kingdom of God until you're there where you're saying, Well, what's next? I don't know. Ask the king. Well, what about this or that or this thing in your life? You're going to have it tomorrow? You're going to go further with it tomorrow? What's next? I don't know. (laughs) Ask the king, right? When you get to that point, now you're living in the kingdom of God. Paul says, here's the amazing thing. I live in the kingdom of God, says Paul. So sometimes in the kingdom of God... God lets me go to jail. Sometimes He lets me get beaten for my trouble of preaching the gospel. 
Sometimes when I go to a city like I went to Thessalonica, I get run out on a rail and I have to run for my life. Why did that happen? Because God chose that for me. Because he's calling the shots. I'm not going to complain about it. I used to complain. In his letter to the Corinthians, he once said, you know, I used to have this issue which was a thorn in the flesh to me. Reading between the lines, scholars have come to conclude it was some sort of physical ailment. Putting together a few references, we think it was some sort of eye disorder. He was not only likely unable to see very well, but he was, in fact, (laughs) not very attractive to look at. If he had the eye disease that it's likely he had at that time, He would ooze pus out of his eye socket. And the eye was swollen and distorted and red and ugly looking. And so Paul said, you know, God, I think I could do a better job preaching if people didn't throw up when they looked at me. How about you take away this thorn in the flesh? He had this prayer session, he says, in his letter to the Corinthians, three times. He's serious about it. He didn't just like pray once and give up. He kept praying about it. Finally, God spoke to him. Paul, my grace is perfected in wisdom. I'm the one who gave you the eye disorder. Why would I take it away? <laughs> Reading between the lines again, I think Paul say, or God's saying to Paul, I got this feeling that people are going to receive the message of grace. That is, that we have nothing to offer and that if we try to be more religious, we'll just get in the way that it's God who can save and change us. They'll accept that better from somebody who looks like they have nothing to offer. And so that's you. And so Paul finally accepted it. That's life in the kingdom of God. Is there a better will for you than the one God has for you? If you think, well, maybe, then not in the kingdom of God. If you think, if I was supposed to be taller, more handsome, um, smarter, whatever I want to put in there, then I would be. But God has other intentions. Huh. Called to service as we represent the kingdom of God. As we confront the challenges before us, we are rewarded with the honor of participating in God's service. When you honestly do live in the kingdom of God, now you immediately become an instrument of God's kingdom. Not until... He's on the throne, securely established as Lord and King of your life. As long as you're still calling the shots, no such guarantee. Paul continues. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. In other words, what you did is, when you first come to Christ, 
This is not a concept that you can easily embrace or understand. Now, it makes perfect sense because remember when your life was a screwed up mess? And that's probably when you came to Christ. He goes, so you had no problem with saying, I think I'll let him run this show. I've seen what I can do running this show. Not so good. I'll trust him. But then you start cleaning up your act and life becomes better and you think, okay, God, I'll take it from here. But Paul says, you need to look at us and imitate what we're doing. And here's what we're doing. We know no matter how much we've grown in the Lord, no matter how much scripture we know, no matter how effectively we pray, no matter how smart we are, no matter how together we look, we have nothing to offer you except for to point you to Him. We've turned our lives over to Christ. We invite you to do the same. Pastor, my husband's a jerk and I can't stand living with him. No, I'm not reading your mind. Uh, he go like, uh, what can you do for us? And what I can do for you is Give it to God. I don't know, maybe God doesn't want you to be with Him. If He doesn't, He'll probably die tomorrow. You're not in charge. Oh, wait a minute. Are you? We are used in this setting to expand Christ's influence. That is... When you honestly do live in the kingdom of God, your life entirely submitted to Him, you, you have this miraculous experience of knowing that God is using you. Using you to do what? Good question. Using you to promote and represent the very message that changed your life, which is, refer back, God's grace has changed everything. By God's grace, He has saved you. By God's grace, He's making something of your life. By God's grace, someday you'll be with Him in eternity. It's the only message you have to share. It's the only message you can effectively share. And when you do, you will notice other people. What was the word that He used? You became... Imitators. <laughs> Imitate. Seems like a strange word. We used to think of imitation as something kind of strange and wrong. But the truth is that it is the essence of the concept of discipleship. When Jesus called disciples to follow Him during His stay on earth, remember? He would say to them, Come, do what? Follow Me. The word follow in Greek is the word mimete. You know English where we get from mimete? Mimic. Imitate. Okay? He said, just, just watch what I do. Do what I do. Then he left and he said to his disciples, Now, here's the deal. I'm leaving. You just do for others what I did for you. Let them follow you as you follow me. Now, it's dangerous if you don't follow Christ, isn't it? It becomes multiplied dangerous 
If you don't follow Christ and other people are following you. Correct? But it happens all the time. People come to church and look around for the most religious looking person. I'll follow them. That could be dangerous. Look instead for the humblest person. The most dependent person. The person that talks grace the most. Like, you go up to them and you say, Wow, I noticed that you don't struggle with with this. Could you tell me your secret for not struggling with this? And the person says back to you, Let me tell you about the things I struggle with. (laughs) See, that's that's not our temptation at that point, is it? We would much rather go, well, yes, I used to have a problem with that, but I've got it all straightened out now. Have you indeed? It's the message of grace with which we've been entrusted. We're used to expand Christ's influence. As we confront the challenges before us, we're rewarded with the wonder of seeing God at work. When we just embrace grace and we just share grace, you can see God working through your life to change others. It's a marvelous thing to see. So Paul says, You suffered from your own people. The same things those churches people suffered from the Jews. Now, if you, if you make this line like, these, Oh, he's been down on the Jews. Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. No, he's talking about particular Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. You can substitute, whenever you see a New Testament reference to Jews, you can just substitute religious people. (laughs) Okay, so do that. Religious people who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. These religious people displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles, to non-religious people, so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Well, if we have submitted entirely to God and are living in the kingdom of God and are dispensing grace to people around us, then how come life can be so difficult? Why would God allow those of us who are here to represent Him to suffer? Well, good question. How could you possibly expect to be a representative of the one who suffered so we could be saved and have it not involve suffering. It makes absolutely no sense to think. What does the ideal Christian look like? Their life is smooth as can be. No problems, no hassles, everything's good. They never go without a single thing. What kind of a follower is that of Christ? not a very good follower of Christ because that's not the way he was. How are you imitating Christ if your imitation doesn't involve some level of suffering? 
As we confront the challenges before us, we are actually rewarded with the joy of being able to suffer in God's will. What do you pray when you suffer? I'll tell you because I know. Here's what 99.9% of all Christians God, take away this suffering so I can serve you better. And he answers back to you. It's the very reason why I'm allowing you to suffer. Because through your suffering, I'm going to get a lot more done than I could ever get done through your successes, through your happiness, through your ease of life. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in other words, Paul's talking about when we got kicked out of town, (laughs) out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Have you grown in your faith to the point, unfortunately, where you're to the point where somebody else is struggling and going off and you think you're the answer to their problem? You do understand, that's a huge mistake. How are you going to help anybody else? How are you going to help another sinner? You can't. If God doesn't do it through you, it's not going to get done. You're not going to help anyone. You're not going to save anyone. You're not going to fix anyone. You're not going to straighten anybody out. Not your job. And good thing, because you're not very good at it, are you? Right? Do you know what the opposite of love is in the New Testament? Because it's not hate. Hate's as passionate as love. The opposite of love is, and you know this if you've been in a bad relationship of some sort, it's control. We substitute trying to control for loving someone. Because it's a lot easier, even though it's impossible, than loving someone, accepting someone. We try to fix them. We try to clean them up. We try to (laughs) knock off all the rough parts, right? And how's that work for you? Yeah, and you think you're a failure because of that. No, you're just not good at doing what you were never designed to do. For we wanted to come to you, says Paul. Certainly I did. Again and again. But Satan blocked our way. And you're thinking, yeah, see there, Satan's the problem. (laughs) You need to understand that Satan never does anything that God doesn't allow him to do. Don't you know that? (laughs) I remember one time hearing a a Sunday school teacher of three and four-year-olds. And they were in a class. And somehow the topic of Satan came up. And one of the little boys said to the teacher... "Um, Teacher, if God is so strong, how come he doesn't just kill the devil? Good question, by the way. And, and the teacher gave an even better answer. She said, when he's finished with him, he will. When Satan blocks your way, it's God using Satan to block your way. Paul stayed in Thessalonica for three weeks. In his mind, that wasn't long enough to build a church. That wasn't long enough to get all of the believers on the same page and doing what God wanted them to do. But 
that was God's plan. And God used some pretty evil people to get Paul out of town. Then when he went to Berea, just so he wouldn't come back, the Thessalonians chased him down in Berea and he had to leave there too. So yeah, Satan may be blocking your way, but be sure (laughs) you're not declining the help of God when he's blocking your way. In God's family, the truth is that when God wants to use an instrument to help somebody else, to point somebody else to Christ, to help somebody else grow in Christ, He has lots of choices to make, doesn't He? I'm always amazed at codependent people who will think that, well, I got to help. I got to do it. I got to go. It doesn't matter whether I need more sleep. I got to get out of bed and go. I got to be the one to be there. I better bail them out. I better do this. They'll never get better if I don't help. Do you really think that God doesn't have other instruments He can use? You really think you're the only one who's available to help people? The only one that God can use? There might be check this now, there might be somebody who is even more spiritual than you that God could use. Could it be? God chooses, doesn't He? And when we become part of His kingdom, we become part of a family. And God, I've noticed, rarely uses the person who's emotionally closest to the people who need help. (laughs) He uses some stranger. We might even resent that fact. But the truth is, God's family is broader than you can possibly imagine. So Paul concludes, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown? The word crown here is the word stephanos. It's the victor's wreath that's placed upon the winning athlete's head. What marks us as a winner. How do we know if we're succeeding as a Christian in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes? Is it not you? (laughs) Meaning, the glory is the people that God uses to influence through your life, through what you have to offer, through who you are. Indeed, you are our glory and you are our joy. When we submit to God and live in His kingdom like this, we are allowed to behold the glory of God and the power of God. People oftentimes will pray for miracles. You know, the only miracles that God really cares that much about is the miracle of changing people from the inside out. And when you get invited to be part of that plan, (laughs) it is an amazing gift of God's grace. As we confront the challenges before us, we are rewarded with the sense of purpose that comes from being used as instruments of God's grace. About... 35 years ago, I was a young man, among other things, and I was in my early 30s, and I got a chance to go and help a group of 30 college students 
who are going to work under the auspices of a mission organization to build a church in Belgium. And the missionary who was leading this um, project was a friend of mine. And so he was here for a missions conference and he said to me, you should go and be the pastor to the group. You're better in English than I am and you're closer to the age of these college students than I am. I think you'd be perfect. Why don't you see if the church will give you three months off to go to Belgium and help us build a church? Well, I said, well, that's nice and very flattering, but I can't imagine possibly because the church will die without me. That's how I thought. I didn't say that. Okay. But the more time passed, the more I came convicted that that's exactly what God wanted me to do. So I signed up and I went. I was gone for three months. And while I was in Belgium, uh, on the way there, they had us fill out these things saying, what do you do? What do you enjoy doing? What are you good at? Da, 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 da. And one of the things I put on there was I love sports, and I'm currently uh, operating as a basketball coach. I was a high school basketball coach. And, yeah, short guys can coach basketball. Uh, anyhow, uh, I was a basketball coach. And so they said, oh, well, we can use you because the, the young people, the adolescents, the teenagers in Belgium are dying to learn how to play American basketball. Okay? And, and, and Michael Jordan is like their hero. All right? So, so this will be awesome because you can teach basketball all day. And then when they take breaks, preach the gospel to them. Share your testimony. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll give that a shot. So I did. And the first week I had this group of kids, maybe 12 to 16, and I was teaching them basketball, teaching them to stop trying to kick the ball because you got to use your hands in basketball, okay? It was pretty rudimentary. Today, basketball is king in Europe, but this was 30 years ago. And so uh, uh, on the first day, I met a, a young fellow by the name of Francois. And Francois was a curious kid who'd been in a lot of trouble. And I taught I was teaching him how to play basketball. I'm not sure if he learned anything. But um, during the break time, I shared my testimony. And he responded to the invitation and accepted Christ as his Savior. This was an amazing thing because I was able to lead him to Christ with my French, which is worse than my Spanish. Okay? So it was very limited, proving that God was in it. Well, Three months later, when we're ready to leave Belgium, the, the tour bus is loading up and we're rolling out of town. And here comes Francois. He's running beside the bus trying to get us to stop. The bus does stop to see what he wants. And he's wanting to give me his ball cap. He had this old tattered red ball cap, not from any team or anything, with a hole in it. And that he wanted to give it to me so I wouldn't forget him. Well, of course, since he's the only person I've ever led to Christ in French, I would never forget him, but he didn't know that. So he gave me the cap. That cap still sits on my desk at home, by the way. Um, so I do, don't forget it. But here's the, here's the critical thing. <laughs> so then about uh, 20 years ago, uh, Danielle, you remember Daniel Lieberg? Okay. Well, Daniel's father was the missionary I was working with in Belgium, uh, Sam Lieberg. And uh, Daniel now pretty much has the role that Sam had in that part of Belgium. So I said to, to uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel, is the church in Liège still functioning? He said, yeah, it is, it is. And I said, uh, I know this is just would be a miracle, but would there happen to be a fellow in the church? Let's see, right now, he'd probably have to be like in his 30s, named Francois. 
he goes, Francois, he said his last name, which is even less pronounceable than Francois. And I said, yeah. And he said, he's the pastor. (laughs) The pastor got led to Christ to a guy who knew like probably 50 vocabulary words in French. (laughs) Now that's amazing. There were missionaries who were well better equipped to do it than me. But that was God's choice for me at that moment. Every time I see that ball cap, I remember what God can do when you just say, okay, you want me to go to Belgium? I'll go to Belgium. Or you say, okay, you want me to befriend my coworker? I'll do it. You want me to be nice to my neighbor? I can do it. Back to M. Scott Peck. So how do you need to think about the problems in your life? And Peck says this. Life, if you can't put yourself into this story, you're not paying attention, so listen carefully. Life is a series of problems. Do we want to moan about them? Or do we want to solve them? Do we want to teach our children to moan about them? Or to solve them. Discipline is the basic set of tools we require to solve life's problems. Without discipline, we can solve nothing. With only some discipline, we can only solve some problems. With total discipline, we can solve all problems. What makes life difficult is that the process of confronting and solving problems is a painful one. Problems, depending upon their nature, evoke in us a sense of frustration or grief or sadness or loneliness or guilt or regret or anger or fear or anxiety or anguish or despair. And these are uncomfortable feelings, often very uncomfortable, often as painful as any kind of physical pain, sometimes equaling the very worst kind of physical pain. Indeed, It is because of the pain that events or conflicts engender in us that we call them problems. And since life poses an endless series of problems, life is always difficult and always full of pain as well as joy. Yet it is in this whole process of meaning and solving problems that life begins to have meaning. Problems are the cutting edge that distinguishes between success and failure. Problems call forth our courage and our wisdom. Indeed, they create our courage and our wisdom. It is only because of problems that we grow mentally and spiritually. When we desire to encourage the growth of the human spirit, we challenge and encourage the growth of the human spirit to solve problems. Just as in school, we deliberately set problems for our children to solve. It is through the pain of confronting and resolving problems that we learn and grow. As Benjamin Franklin said, those things that hurt instruct. And it is for this reason that wise people learn not to dread, but actually to welcome 
problems and actually to welcome the pain of problems. But most of us are not that wise. Fearing the pain involved, any of you have ever struggled with a compulsive behavior or addiction, listen up. Fearing the pain involved, almost all of us to a greater or lesser degree attempt to avoid problems. We procrastinate, hoping they will go away. We ignore them, forget them, pretend they do not exist. We take drugs to assist us in ignoring them so that by deadening ourselves to the pain, we can forget the problem that caused the pain. We attempt to skirt around problems rather than meet them head on. We attempt to get out of them rather than suffer through them. This tendency to avoid problems, and to avoid the emotional suffering inherent in them, is the primary basis of all human mental illness. Since most of us have this tendency to a greater or lesser degree, most of us are in fact mentally ill to a greater or lesser degree, lacking complete mental health. Some of us will go to quite extraordinary lengths to avoid our problems and the suffering they cause, proceeding far afield from all that is clearly good and sensible in order to try to find an easy way out, building the most elaborate fantasies in which to live, sometimes to the total exclusion of reality. In the succinctly elegant words of Dr. Carl Jung, neurosis is always a substitute for legitimate suffering. But the substitute itself, see if you can relate to this, the substitute itself becomes more painful than the legitimate suffering it was designed to avoid. The neurosis itself becomes the biggest problem. True to form, many will then attempt to avoid this pain and this problem in turn, building layer upon layer of neurosis. Fortunately, however, some possess the courage to face their neuroses and begin, usually with help, to learn how to experience legitimate suffering. You're the one who chose to go to a church with a pastor who has degrees in psychology. That spoke to me. hope it spoke to you. If God has allowed challenges in your life, it is not to destroy you, but so that in your response, you might learn and grow and embrace more of His grace for your life. With the lessons of our past clearly in mind, and the hope we have been given for the future unfolding before us, how will we respond to the challenges we encounter today? The answer to that question will generally answer where you'll be a year from now. How your life will be different five years from now. What place you'll be in in the future. Here's your homework for the week. First, what are the greatest challenges that you are currently facing? Second, what is your game plan 
for addressing Sam. If, by the way, you don't have a game plan, recovery people can substitute program. If you don't have a game plan, <laughs> then you're this person that M. Scott Peck's been talking about. No game plan equals cover up, hide, pretend it doesn't exist. Read chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians in preparation for next week's lesson as we talk about our response to life's challenges. Let's pray.